Hi, this is Steve Hargadon. It's the 2nd of August, 2012. This is the second day of our three-day kickoff for Connected Educator Month. So glad you could be here with us. I've really been looking forward to this panel. It's a sort of a little special gift I've given myself. This is called Beyond Top-Down Distributed Leadership and Teacher-Led Change. And we have Shelley Blake-Plock in the room. We have Susie Boss, Lisa Dabbs, Bill Ferreter, Shelley Terrell, whom we're going to refer to as Shell, and I am the moderator. This is really a lot of fun. If you haven't joined the email list for Connected Educator Month, you can do so at connecteducatormonth.org. You'll, you'll discover lots of fun things happening every day for the rest of August, and hopefully some things that you will enjoy and will have fun participating in. So what I'd like to do uh, for this panel is to start by asking each of you to give a little bit of background about yourself, maybe 30 to 45 seconds. And within the context of that, to answer this one question, each of you to answer the same question. And that question is, how important has social media been um, in your own professional development and even in your own personal life? Do you feel that you have gone through substantive changes because of personal, or sorry, because of social media. And let's start with uh, Shelley. Hey there, uh, my name is Shelley Blake-Buck. I am co-executive director at the Digital Harbor Foundation in Baltimore, Maryland. And we are, uh, among other things, we run an after-school program with Baltimore City Public Schools. Um, we give uh, free uh, professional development to teachers in the Baltimore City Public School System. And we provide these um, after-school connected opportunities for kids and their parents in, the, in their communities um, to learn digital literacy uh, and to be involved in, um, in, in maker community uh, to spur innovation here at the local level. Um, in terms of how important social media has been, um, I really don't remember, in a way, not being connected into social media. And I can definitely say that all of the sort of professional opportunities that have come my way, uh, certainly in the past several years, uh, have been directly, uh, I would directly attribute to uh, to social media and my ability to engage with uh, with a, a wide, varied group of people out there. Terrific. Let's go to Susie now. Hi, this is Susie Boss. I'm so happy to be here with all of you. Um, I am old enough to say that uh, social media is part of my way of thinking about connections once upon a time. The way to think about your connections was kind of how big your Rolodex was. And if you were changing jobs, you took your Rolodex with you because that was your lifeblood of connections. So I would say as a journalist um, and writer about education, I write for Edutopia among other publications. Um, and you know, I, I think being able to have a much broader, more connected, vibrant conversation um, is just a, a wonderful gift and has been a, meant a huge change for me in my professional life and I guess also personal life just because my world is so much richer with all the people I've been able to meet around the world. Lisa? 
Hey everyone. Hi from Southern California. Um, Steve, thank you so much for inviting me with this fabulous panel. So many uh, people here that I admire so very much. And just a little bit of background about myself. I was a very uh, focused uh, educator, um, project director for a federally funded project and an elementary school principal for actually 14 years. And it wasn't until I met, and I have to tell everybody, my mentor, Shelly Terrell, back in December or November of 2009, that I really was able to begin to uh, jump into social media with both feet. Uh, I do have to give Shelly credit. She mentored me through the blogging process. She mentored and supported me through what social media was. I had no idea what a personal learning network was or a PLM. And she mentored me through the process of developing my uh, new teacher chat for teachers. And part of my passion for doing that is my work that I did spend as an elementary school principal. What I noticed was that so many uh, new teachers came uh, to interviews and then actually on my campus quite unprepared for what they were going to encounter in the regular public school system, not ready for parents, not ready for pedagogy, not ready to even collaborate with um, other uh, teachers. And so um, through my journey that's been about two and a half years now of social media, I've seen a tremendous change in my work now as an independent consultant, also privileged like Susie to blog for Edutopia, among other places. And lastly, that what I've observed, Steve, is that in the over 20 years that I spent in the building, I did not grow as much as the two and a half years that I have since I've jumped into and embraced using social media in my work. Bill? Bill, it looks like you turned your video off. Did you mean to hit the talk button instead? All right, let's try this. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Apologize for the digital glitch. My name is Bill Ferreter, and I am a sixth, there we go. Now, now I can see myself. I'm a sixth grade science teacher in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I think that social media spaces have been sort of a part of my own growth and development for a long while, and uh, I value them because they give me an opportunity to have a voice. And I think as a classroom teacher, a lot of times we don't necessarily have the chance to sit at the table with influential policymakers or decision makers. And that's, I think, what I value the most. I mean, I, I learn a ton from social spaces, and the connections that I've made have been great and enriching. Uh, but at the same time, I love the fact that I can be heard, and I don't have to ask permission to talk, which is a good thing. Terrific. Shell? Hello. I'm Shelly Terrell. Um, can you guys see me and hear me okay? We can see you, and, and uh, your video will show up in just a second. There you go. Okay. Sorry. I got thrown by that. But hello. I'm a teacher trainer, and um, part of the reason why I get to do the things that I do is because social media has completely changed my life, <laughs> transformed my life. And I think it's because so many of the educators that are on social media and connecting are really passionate about education and really want to share their voice. And because of that, I've been able to create many different types of projects like an online conference, the Reform Symposium, EdChat, uh, which is a Twitter chat, and many, many other projects. And I'm so excited to be here today. And thank you for coming and not seeing the Olympics for just a little bit to hear us today. Okay, so I've uh, I've made a decision, and I and um, I'm willing to get some pushback on it. But I felt like it would be valuable to start with the personal, 
and, and, and using the springboard of the personal to move to classroom practices and then to move to the larger sort of education and education reform discussions. So if we can, let's stick with the personal for just a second. Um, it feels to me like I would describe my own experiences with social media as being part of a personal cognitive revolution that it's really shifted my own learning and my engagement. And that, like Bill said, that, you know, to, to be able to have voice. Um, Lisa, I'm interested in starting with you and anybody else who wants to uh, raise their hand and on the panel to answer this question, uh, please feel free to do so. Um, how have you seen the movement toward individually led or teacher led learning uh, impact um, the broader learning and are, are we preaching to a small choir here and if so how do we expand this understanding of our being self-directed learners? Sure Steve, I'm, I'm happy to answer that question. One of the things that I want to share from a personal perspective is and, and really I always go back to my 14 years as a principal because when I worked in my building it was always in, in, the, in a way of uh, collaborative leadership. In other words, I was always pushing and pulling my teachers to collaborate with me in leadership rather than, you know, I'm the principal and I tell you what to do and then you just do it and you lockstep and there you go. And what I found was, and this is why this is so intriguing, this discussion today is that I had to pull them literally kicking and screaming. And so as I made my transition out of uh, public school work and, and struggled with that aspect of having teachers tell me, well, it's just so much easier if you just do it or if you just tell us what to do. I mean, I would just like hit my head against the wall. It was so frustrating. So moving into the world of and into Web 2.0 and, and into social media and seeing the movement for teacher-led, teacher-driven PD, particularly, Steve, in the area of ed camps, which I really, really love, has just been so transformational for me. I, I think that had we had that kind of movement or that kind of opportunity when I was a principal, I think we would have really been able to get teachers more actively engaged in doing that. And so now that we do have these opportunities for teacher-led, teacher-driven, unconference spaces uh, that we want to call them, and I particularly love the idea of EdCamp um, started by uh, Dan Callahan and, and one of my faves, Mary Beth Hertz. I really think it gives, as Bill said earlier, really a voice to educators. It gives them an opportunity, even as a new teacher, which is something I'm really pushing consistently and constantly for, for new teachers to have a voice, for them to feel that they can be heard. When you talk about that preaching to the choir piece, I do believe that we're still pushing against that. I do think that's still a challenge. Here in my community in Southern California, we have a fabulous uh, a little college and um, Nixon went to this college and there's nothing going on there, Steve, for a movement towards a, a broader opportunity for teacher-led, teacher-driven opportunities. And so I do feel sometimes that we're preaching to the choir as I sit here with my colleagues collaborating. But I think that the opportunity for the EdCamp model to really engage us and to push us and to give teachers a voice, and I just love, uh, again, that, that Bill said that because I really believe in that, it's just a powerful movement, and I think that the more we embrace that, the, the stronger we will become, and really, the more powerful and louder our voices will be. So it feels like there's this really significant parallel between the experience of an educator becoming self-directed in their learning and what we hope for for students. So is there anybody else on the panel who'd want to address that question? 
of uh, you know this sort of this personal moment and how it transitions us into to rethinking our own learning, and then how we might um, think about helping to expand this. Go ahead, Bill. I think one of the things that we have to remember is that our students are super comfortable in personalized learning spaces, right? I mean, they understand that they can learn about what they want to learn about and connect with who they want to connect with at any time. And that's why there's this big disconnect between what students feel about learning in school versus what they feel about learning beyond school. So I think my greatest worry in this entire conversation is that if teachers aren't willing to embrace kind of the differentiated opportunities that are available to them as learners today, then how can we really expect them to create classrooms that allow for differentiated learning for their own kids? And more importantly, how can they create classrooms that sort of resonate with what students know are possible? Does that make sense to anybody else? Well, one of the first things I remember being told as a parent that really stuck with me was, if you want your kids to be good readers, have them see you being a good reader. So it seems like all of this change we're talking about does depend on this sort of personal process of change. Go ahead, Susie. Thanks. Yes, I, I guess just kind of tagging um, onto what Bill was talking about. Um, you know, I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about how we get kids um, kind of open up their opportunities to innovate, to really go places with their ideas. And I've been, um, you know, watching teachers who are good at this show their students how to grow a network. Because it's not enough to have a good idea. You have to be able to take it somewhere and do something with it. And so I think that's becoming one of these kind of core skills of the, the, the present and the, certainly for the future. Um, teachers who know how to do this then can help their students you know, take an idea, make it go viral, bring a much larger audience um, and participants and improve on ideas that way. So I guess I'm seeing the power of networking in some new ways. So the change begins with me. Any, anybody else want to address that before we sort of move to the, to the second stage of the classroom? Go ahead, Shell. I think Bill made a really great point about students. I think sometimes we forget that students are more used to this type of learning than teachers are because students grew up in this type of learning. They go on Facebook on a regular basis. Uh, on different social networks, before that is MySpace, and for them it's it's much more comfortable to learn this way. And I think for teachers, um, it, it's a much bigger climb. And so I think with teachers, there's definitely that voice, but they're really afraid to share that voice with a lot of the teachers I've heard. They say, oh, well, I come onto Twitter or I join Twitter, but everybody's going to know what I share. And it's really important that we take the steps that we, we realize that it's going to be a process and that we have to stick with the process in supporting them and helping them find their voice and helping them have the courage to go on the social networks and share. And after a while, then they start to get it. But it takes a lot longer than with our students. Uh, good point, Bill. I, I think another thing with that is that for a lot of the people on this panel, um, we have been involved in these learning networks for a long time. 
and we've had, um, in a way, sort of a, a a difficult part of the sort of exponential growth of social media is that the later you sort of get into it, or the later you bring it into your practice, the more difficult it can become. Um, by very definition, you know, not everything can be viral. Um, there is a, a very interesting sort of sophisticated selectivity that happens in the social media space. And I think that we have to give a lot of support to teachers who might just be coming into social media now without having years of experience. Uh, teachers who, you know, are using Twitter for the first time, I think that we often, and I'm speaking for myself here, uh, often think about sort of all teachers in relation to how I myself or other people in the, in the social network are. Um, and we can forget that you have to, you have to, you have to build um, within the networks. And I think that if we're talking about distributed leadership, we have an obligation, we being the teachers who have been hooked into social media for a long time, have an obligation to really help um, distribute what we've learned and distribute our connections to teachers who are just coming into this. Shelley, do you think it makes sense if we're thinking about the personal change um, to, to broaden beyond just educational topics? Is there value in when we think about encouraging educators to go through the personal change to not limit it to just education, but also the other kinds of things that they would do on personal growth on the web? Um, yeah, personally, I think it's essential. Um, because we, we think back to when we were in school, right, and you would like be in fourth grade and see the uh, see your math teacher at the grocery store. And it's like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you at the grocery store? Um, because sort of the lives of teachers themselves uh, become very sort of, there are a lot of expectations and standardizations in terms of what the teacher does. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with sort of like the old uh, idea of what it meant for a teacher to go through their career. They had one ladder. You, you follow this ladder and this is what you do. And we see the same thing in the corporate world. We see the same thing in athletics, we, just across the board. Well, in the social media world, there are many ladders. And teachers can be entrepreneurs. Teachers can be journalists. Teachers can create new programs and be advocates for their kids and try new things. And it's really important that the kinds of passions that teachers have about the things going on in their world are reflected in the, the media that, that they produce, the social media that they produce. It creates a human connection. Um, the worst thing you can do on social media is just put out sort of your corporate list of the, these are like the expectations of what social media is supposed to look like. Um, and that means it's a little bit more dangerous perhaps. It's risky, but um, th there's, no, there's no change. There, there's no I can't tell Susan, Shell, if you have your hands up from before or if you wanted to address this. If you have your hands up now, please feel free to chime in. 
Okay. So does anybody else want to uh, piggyback on, on any of those thoughts? So let's move to uh, classroom practice uh, and classroom changes. Susie, how do you think uh, educators are using these connections uh, to think about changing the classroom? That, that is a, a big question, isn't it? Um, I mean, I can tell you a few of the things that I'm noticing. And um, just the evolution of this and how quickly things are evolving. You know, it used to be that I, I mean, I've been doing education research and writing about great teachers for a long time. So I've always been, you know, in their classrooms, talking to them, trying to track down the innovators. And it used to be that they would ask, what else are you seeing? Who else is doing what? Because these networks, these connections were not so robust. It was much harder to, you know, to just find people. And I think now it's very easy to find people and then the the next challenge is how do I find the ones I really want to connect with and do something valuable together so that just signing up for a social networking site that you don't visit very often doesn't do you much good. But how do you figure out how to take that and really adapt it to your needs as a learner or as a connector or finding you know, like-minded colleagues around the world to work with? And I think that's getting... Um, much easier and teachers are getting more adept at starting their own sites or collaborative sites. Um, Digital Is is a great one that I've been following from the National Writing Project where you really have a chance to see, you know, teachers as kind of content creators. Um, so I think things are happening quickly and um, others are going to have more ideas. So I'm going to back out. I am intrigued by the degree to which you played that role that's typically ascribed to consultants in the business world of bringing innovation uh, by being that sort of a bridge and how that's now happening on the web. Um, Bill, I'm interested uh, from you if, if you have any sort of tangible examples of the role that social media has played in changing your own teaching or learning practices. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a tangible example right now. Um, Marsha Ratzel, uh, who is at, Ratzelster, at Ratzelster on Twitter, is a sixth grade science teacher in Kansas. And I met Marsha years ago digitally in the Teacher Leaders Network, which was kind of an online social community for educators who wanted to talk about changing teaching and learning. And I've met her twice. Uh, but probably nobody has changed my classroom practice more than anyone, or more than Marsha. Um, just last year, she started a post about the desire to get her kids tinkering more in class. You know, the notion being that if our kids are creating with their hands and they're thinking with their hands, then they're probably learning science concepts that we really want them to learn. And more importantly, we're probably kind of giving them the skills that they need in order to be innovative and creative. And I was following her tweets about all of this in Twitter, and she kept sharing resources, like tangible projects that she was finding on the web that were kind of maker-driven projects. And uh, at the time, I hadn't thought about doing any of that work in my classroom, but through a few interactions back and forth, she encouraged me to kind of dip my toes into the water. She sent me some support. She sent me a few videos of things that she had done in her class and resources that she'd used. And by the end of the year, we were working on some of the same projects as her class were. And what I think is interesting about all of that or instructive about all of that is nobody in my particular building was ready to do that kind of work yet. So I wasn't finding that kind of professional challenge from my in-the-flesh colleagues. And that isn't a knock against them in any way, shape, or form. I mean, they're awesome people, but that's just not an area that they were comfortable with. And so by being involved in a social space, 
I was able to find another professional who was uh, working on things that I found to be professionally challenging and that changed my practice. Not only did it change my practice, but it changed my belief that those kinds of hands-on tinkering experiments are important enough for me to find time for them in my classroom. Is this shifting the balance of where classroom change comes from? I mean, obviously, you know, the number of people using social media or connected educators is small with regard to the total body of teachers. But for those who are, is this changing uh, where the uh, impetus or uh, change uh, actually comes from rather than being top down, being sort of peer driven side to side? Is that fair? Does anybody want to respond to that? I mean, I, I would say the answer to your question is sure, Steve. Um, I think what I like the best about social spaces is that they allow everyone to be challenged. Uh, you know, I, I don't think professional development in schools is particularly well differentiated, and so I don't think that individuals are challenged at whatever point they need to be challenged at by the professional development that happens within a building. Uh, I don't know that that's a knock against professional development providers in a building. They have the same challenges that classroom teachers do. Hugely diverse populations of teachers who have different skill sets. Uh, and digital spaces allow people to find other peers that are able to challenge them at the level that they're able to be challenged at. So I think that digital spaces are a differentiator in teacher professional development and it's a much needed one. I'm pausing in case anybody else wants to respond. Go ahead, Susie. Yeah, I would just say, you know, as you're talking about differentiators, um, Bill, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, a great concept like, um, you know, EdChat, which now has splintered, not splintered, but has um, expanded um, in a colossal way into all kinds of narrower focused EdChats on very specific topics. So teachers are able to use that same idea, you know, weekly uh, meeting on Twitter at a scheduled time and hashtags and find exactly the colleagues that they want to talk with and exchange ideas with. And I think that's also part of this um, power that's in teachers' hands now is that they can go ahead and get things started um, very easily that way by taking an idea and replicating it, making it work for them in um, just the way that they need. Just grab the mic, Lisa. Okay, thanks, Steve. You know, um, one of the things that I shared at a previous uh, webinar with you that, that I think was very important, and it was funny because, you know, Tom made a comment about it, but to some of our points right now, my frustration is in wanting to really encourage this teacher-led, teacher-driven leadership piece, and I was really encouraged when I read Seth Godin's book last year, Tribes. Um, and, you know, it continues to be the impetus for me, not only as a consultant, but as the work that I do with new teachers, is that our new teachers are still not being instructed in the way that we would, those of us that are comfortable with social media and comfortable with Web 2.0, are being taught. Um, Jeff Heil is, is, is here um, from uh, San Diego, and, and he's one of the rare uh, higher ed professors who believes in the power of social media to, to be important in the work that he does with new and pre-service teachers. But in general, you know, and, and, and Tom joked about this, that I said they're still being instructed in the 20th century model, and he joked 19th century. And so that's one of my frustrations, that yes, there are veterans in the field and amazing teachers, 
um, like Bill, who are doing amazing collaborations. But I think we're still forgetting about those thousands of people that are in higher ed right now that are going to flood this country and, and potentially globally when baby boomers finally retire in three to five years, that they're not being guided, they're not being mentored in how to use these tools um, in higher ed. And that's a huge frustration for me. So if they're not being mentored to do that, and they come out with this, dare I say, 19th century model, how can we expect them then to jump in with their two feet into social media and Web 2.0? So, you know, I really think there there needs to be, you know, and it's, it's frustrating, we still need to be knocking on the door of higher ed and, you know, either writing about it, talking about it, you know, doing something more about that to get those folks on board with what the power of social media collaboration can do in the life of, you know, not just a new teacher, but teachers, period. So I'll get off my soapbox now. It was really hard for me not to start out with the larger conversation about education reform, uh, you know, and to begin with the personal and then go to the classroom. Um, so I think we're going to get to that, Lisa, and I really appreciate that comment. Um, before we move out of the classroom, Shelley, I want to ask Shelley specifically, Shelley BP, um, aside from just sort of changes in teaching practices in the classroom or engagement, re-engagement or excitement um, that Bill's you know, well described, um, are we seeing teachers reshape what the classroom itself looks like or the education space is? Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll give two brief examples. The first one is uh, in my own experience in, in my classroom. Uh, here's the story. Uh, we, uh, ninth graders, um, and we were studying West Civ. Um, we, oh, pardon me, it was human geography class, and we were studying migration patterns. Uh, and we had a color-coded map of the U.S. with uh, everything color-coded to help people say soda or Coke or pop or soft drink. Um, and it was sort of interesting, and we could sort of point out uh, what um, different people in different parts of the country said. And then one of the students said, well, but how do we know the map is accurate? And that question sort of is a challenge uh, that traditionally we just had to go on faith. Well, you know, well, well, the authority there at the publishing house said it's accurate, therefore it must be. Instead, we turned to social media. We put the question out through my network. So in a way, my Twitter account became a pipeline for the questions that my high school freshman had. Um, what, what, what do you all call it, right? And within a couple of minutes, we had um, dozens upon dozens upon dozens, uh, 85 responses. I am so-and-so, this is where I live, this is what I call it. I am so-and-so, this is where I live, this is what I call it. And sort of an interesting thing happened, because then we take that and apply it back to the map. And what we saw was that what we got out of that, that live Twitter feed validated the authority of the data that we're looking at. And that's sort of a really powerful thing because that shows that this data is based in the real world, right? But there's another thing that happens, and I think this is the big change uh, that we're not really getting 
a hold on yet when it comes to how we assess and what we are talking about when we're talking about learning. And that bigger thing is not only did the network validate and authorize the, the quality of the data, but the data itself, because it was accurate, validated the authenticity of the network itself. And years ago at ISTE, somebody said, um, you know, we used to tell kids not to talk to strangers. Now we have to tell them how to talk to strangers because we're living in a world where sort of the validity of culture, the validity of ideas, the ability to share happens among people who meet in a virtual space untied to geography, place, familiarity, locale. And the authenticity of the network itself is, I think, the greatest sea change that we're seeing culturally in terms of the way that, that we relate both on a personal and a public level and on a personal and a, and a professional level. I mean, we're seeing a lot of people try to define the classroom right now or the new classroom. We certainly have philanthropic, philanthropic ventures. We have venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. How important is it that uh, and how possible is it for teachers to use this moment to be uh, in that conversation of defining what that, that learning space looks like? Anyone? I'll just jump in and say that if teachers themselves are not involved in the development of those ideas, the development of those technologies, then the technologies themselves uh, bear uh, an inherent irrelevance um, we hear from certain folks uh, in the technology sector that educators themselves are uh, irrelevant, um, to use a word that gets thrown around. Uh, I, I would say that education technologies that are not vetted through a process of building and design with educators on the ground as it happens, um, that, that I don't need those things, and I, I don't think educators in general need them. Here in Baltimore, what we're doing is we're joining educators and technologists together to produce new open source technologies that can be shared by everyone, can be adapted, redeveloped, and that come directly out of the real experience of teachers and students. So I think having teachers and students in that conversation about the development of these technologies and in the development of you know, what, what have you, um, I find that sort of scalability, a scalability of common interest and purpose in education, much more interesting and ultimately I, I think it's going to prove much more powerful than the traditional scalability of, of capital. I'm really interested to hear from Shell on this one because it feels as though you've been involved in grassroots created activities that are designed to help educators see each other's practices and these changes. Uh, do, do you feel like that's um, having impact? Um, I think it, it is having impact. Uh, when I think about that I was on Twitter three years ago, uh, I joined Twitter and I was a teacher in Germany and I was trying to get the staff just to embrace technology and it was really difficult. And now I have... Um, politicians, um, different types of organizations around the world ask me for advice just because I decided to join Twitter 
Um, and I, I think one thing about connected teachers is once you see the power of a network supporting you, you feel stronger, you feel more empowered, and you start spreading your voice. And the more you spread your voice, the more empowered you feel to be able to speak up. And I remember one of the first things I did was uh, I finally had the courage to tell my my director if we could have a Skype uh, conversations and have Skype within our and 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 he was so excited and he ended up talking to the Ministry of Education um, in in Stuttgart, Germany at the time and got them in board on board and got them to join this this big Skype uh, collaboration between students and that was just because I felt I had more of a voice but I think also there are organizations like uh, recently we've had Arnie Duncan um, interested with EdChat and and finding out you know, teachers and why, um, what their feelings are and wanting to collaborate. And, and so things like that show me that just by being a, a teacher, we may feel like um, we don't have anything to share, but once we get connected and once we find our voice and once we do go out there and, and, and create, I think that's the important part is creating. And I think we're all examples of that in this panel. We've all created something. We've all gone beyond the voice and, and got in a community together to join a project. And I think that's where it becomes more powerful. But it takes steps, and it takes steps to grow. And eventually, um, we have politicians from all over the world um, and, and organizations. And we have Microsoft, and you see Google, and all of these that start at the conferences even asking teachers that are connected their input. Oh, we would now, a good example is it's really hard to find a Web 2.0 tool out there that isn't asking several teacher bloggers now that are just blogging their input on their, I get these all the time where they say, can you give us feedback? And, and so I think, yes, these grassroots movements are producing change. That's a lovely segue into the education reform question. I think it's very telling that the Department of Education has been so supportive of this event and of the whole idea of connected educators because it represents um, not a top-down approach but recognizing the value of that grassroots endeavor. We're seeing really huge shifts in power worldwide. Right? You know, I think businesses are seeing uh, a loss of power to define the narrative around their product. You don't go to a restaurant without actually looking up what the the people who the patrons say. You know, book. I never read the re, the publishers' blurbs about a book. I read the other reviewers, the other readers' uh, reviews. And we're certainly seeing um, you know significant political changes. Do you think we're likely to see this in education as well? Will we look back and say that there's that this was a moment of revolution because of the social media? And and this one I'm I'm going to welcome anyone to respond to. You, you know, Steve, I'd like to think that this would be a moment of revolution, but I'm still not totally convinced that even though educators are networking together and using their voice to sort of organize and shape what happens in both our classrooms and around educational policy, I'm still not totally convinced that politicians are ready to seriously listen to us. You know, and I think that's really, really discouraging to me. You know, I mean, I, I've been 
writing in digital spaces about education policy for a long, long while. I've, you know, sat in on conversations with policymakers, but when I join conversations, I still feel like I'm just the token teacher at the table. I, I still feel like when I'm invited to those conversations, people aren't all that interested in hearing what I have to say. And, and maybe I'm just a pessimist by nature. Um, but at the same time, I'm jazzed that I have the opportunity to say whatever I want to say online. You know, I mean, I mean, the impact of my voice blows my mind sometimes. The number of people who read what I write, the number of impressions that my content gets, I just think it's really cool. But I haven't seen tangible change in policy because of the writing that I've done. And I think that lets me down a little bit. Anybody else a little bit more optimistic than I am? Uh, and Susie, uh, uh, we'll let Lisa go next, but Susie, I'm interested in your sort of long-term perspective of watching education and change and, how, and where you think we are. Go ahead, uh, Lisa. Okay, we'll let Susie go first, but you know, to, to Bill's point exactly, and it's something I was sharing earlier, but you know, from the perspective of a long-time administrator, you know, I still get calls from my colleagues that are, you know, in the building and saying, I don't know what you're doing over there in social media. I see you all over the place, but I don't see that there's been any significant change in what we're trying to do here at the school site. We are still, you know, and I, everybody's going to just jump at this with an ire, but we're still, you know, assessment driven, formative assessment driven, whatever kind of assessment driven you want to call it. The, the, the freedoms that you all say, you now that have stepped into this social media arena and this blogging arena, that should be or could be happening are just not happening. Now, I can only speak for California, but, you know, I know hundreds of administrators. I'm in a huge uh, collaboration, well, not collaboration, but a huge community with them called ACSO, the Association of California School Administrators, and it is very stifling. The, the leadership that a principal you know, is perceived to have is just not there. Uh, and it's a rare thing. I only work for one superintendent who said, Lisa, take the ball and run with it. The rest of them work. This is how you do. This is how you walk. This is how you talk. So I, I have to agree with Bill that I, I just, again, I get just this angst um, when I hear from my colleagues that say, you know, great stuff that you're doing, Lisa, but we're not yet seeing the transformation happening at the school buildings with the boots on the ground. Susie, any response from you? Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to jump in here. I mean, you know, I think one of the things we can think about is that for the last decade, you know, we've had this No Child Left Behind system. If we look at the number of states that now have waivers for that, you know, we know that that's going away. I mean, it's just, um, I think it's over 30 states now are, are have, you know, an alternative in place. But I think the role that teachers can play and school leaders, um, all of us can play now, is helping define what should come next. Um, I've been talking with, um, you know, some school administrators, some school leaders who are trying to kind of wrap their heads around, okay, what is this new assessment going to look like? How do we figure out, you know, what it is we want kids to be able to know and do? And I think this is a chance for teachers to really speak up and help shape that and kind of drive, you know, we're, we're going to have some sort of assessment. I think um, that that's just part of being a public system. Um, there are expectations and accountability measures that um, we're not going to um, avoid. But I think we have an, a moment right now um, to get much more vocal about what that should look like, um, create some um, examples. I, I think there's just a real hunger for exemplars. Um, 
you know, here's a school that really knows how to do authentic assessment, performance-based assessment of what kids can do, and, you know, come watch us in action. I think that would be um, very welcome. There's some pioneering districts that are starting to do that work, um, but there's a lot, lot more that could be done along those lines. So um, uh, I'm wondering if any of the um, activities where, where um, teaching and learning are starting to take place outside of the traditional institutions, um, maybe Skillshare, things like that, um, do you think that we're seeing um, movements outside of education that are going to uh, significantly inform or in some cases replace what we've seen in regular education? Bill, your image is up on the screen. I'm not sure that's purposeful, but it does give me a chance to ask you to answer that question. <laughs> nice. I didn't hit the talk button. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I have, um, sh you know, Shelly Blake-Fox just made a really neat comment in the, in the chat box. He said, maybe what we need to do is stop trying to change the system as it exists and create a brand new system. You know, essentially, and I and I hear that a lot. I'm just not so sure. I'm not so sure that that's scalable. I, I'm not so sure that that's something that's going to happen. You know, on, on the broad scale in every community and in every school. And and you know that that's where you know I sort of worry about whether or not we can work within the constraints of the current system or change the current system or blow the system up. I'm just not sure which of those three alternatives is the route to take. So. Be interested in hearing Shelley's perspective on that. Shelley, did you want to respond? He may be deep in thought or reading something. Um, well, I wonder, Bill, if it's not like democracy. I mean, I wonder if it's not something we just support. We say, okay, there's real value in having uh, the kind of engagement that social media provides. We don't really know where it's necessarily going to go, but we're going to support that engagement. So if I take that track and I bring us back to the personal, you know, what is some advice? And, and um, why don't we start with, uh, in the order that you're listed there on the slide, is there one piece of advice that you would give an educator who's new to social media as to how to get started? So that would be Shelley again, if you're there. Again, sure. Um, One piece of advice for an educator to get started with social media. You know, I can tell that he's got an audio slowdown. I get that cue as a moderator here. And so he's going to pop back in when the audio catches up. Let's go to Susie then, and then we'll come back to Shelley. You know, I think the, the one piece of advice is get started. You know, get connected. Um, don't wait to see if this idea is going to play out. I mean, it's here. It's big. It's growing um, every day. And if you're sitting on the sidelines, you know, you're missing out on huge opportunities. So I think what I would suggest to teachers who are brand new to this is find someone who can kind of bring you along comfortably, um, someone you know and trust and would like to learn with and kind of buddy up and learn to 
a new tool, start somewhere, whether it's Twitter or a, a, a big conversation like Classroom 2.0 or wherever it is, you know, get started and, and figure out something that's useful about this um, and keep going from there. Thanks, Susie. Lisa, you've put a note in the chat as a, a, a link there of 20 tips from new teachers. Do you want to expand on that at all? Sure, Steve. I'll just talk a little bit about it. I, I'm so glad you brought up that point. Um, you can check out our response in in that uh, blog post I, I did for Agentopia um, last September. And because, again, my passion, as you know, is, is about supporting new teachers, uh, I, I put 20 uh, reasons to do that. And actually, I'm working on a blog post that's due this afternoon on, you know, connected educators focused for new teachers. But I would have to agree with uh, um, one of the things that, that Susie talked about is, Pick a tool and try it. Uh, one of the things that I really push with my new teachers is if you're not going to get on Twitter, if you know, you might be on Facebook, but if you're not going to get on Twitter, the power of blogging I think is huge. Blogging for yourself and then eventually feeling strong enough after you've done that to be able to teach uh, and, and guide and mentor your students to blog for themselves. Uh, speaking of the personal very quickly, I started blogging after Shelly encouraged me back in the, the fall of 2009, and I said to her in a conversation that I'll never forget, I said, who would want to hear what I have to say? I'm just, I'm just me. And she said, oh my gosh, Lisa, you've been a teacher, a principal for all these years. You must have tons of things to say. So by, in her encouragement, I started to build my, my courage to actually blog. And so, after doing that for a while, maybe just you know a year and a half, I shared it with both of my sons. One is 20 and now, and one is 25. And the 20-year-old, who was 17 at the time, said, oh, mom, you don't have time for that. Nobody doesn't want to hear what I have to say. The same thing that I told Shelly. Well, a year later, he came to me, and he said, mom, I did my first blog post. So the power of modeling, and again, going back to Susie's point, picking one tool to choose, and in this case, I really think it's blogging, it's huge. I mean, now he's blogging all the time. Um, it's, um, it's a political satire type blog. He's an artist. But I think that if we can pick one tool, and I've worked to constantly encourage my new teachers to do it, I would say the tool of blogging is so powerful. And then when you feel more confident, you know, make it public. If you don't want to right now, make it public later. And then eventually, hopefully, take that leap from Facebook onto the community that's so rich uh, on Twitter. Bill? Yeah, my suggestion is to always start with educational hashtags on Twitter. And, uh, and I always recommend that as a starting point simply because I think when teachers start to see that they can find resources and make connections with people in Twitter really, really easily and that they can find things that they can use practically in, the, in their classroom and have their ideas challenged straight away, that's when they become hooked. That's when they become um, convinced that maybe there is some power in this network thing. Uh, you know, oftentimes I think the mistake that we make as uh, people who are trying to drive change is that we ask people to tackle tasks that they're not ready for yet. And so on the very surface level, what every teacher needs is access to quick resources. We don't have a lot of time to plan in our classrooms. We don't have a lot of time for professional learning. And so when people see how quick and easy learning can be, by using educational hashtags, then they're able to really, you know, become convinced readily that this, this social media space thing has some value that they may be interested in pursuing. Joe? 
Oh, I agree with all the advice. Uh, I definitely think the first step is definitely with um, finding a friend. And, and I think going back to blogging as well, um, and Don said something really important in the chat about making the blog first a personal voice and making it a, a personal reflection of our practice. And then back to the hashtags, I just shared the link, and I always, in my training sessions, share uh, Jerry Cyberman's Twitter hashtags, educational hashtags. And I think it's really fantastic to be able, when I see new teachers that are new to being on social networks, when they see the hashtag and they see that that's a small community and it's a small amount of people that they can talk to, and it's within their subject area, it's really powerful for them to be able to connect that way. And I think that's the advice I would give is to find that small community that will engage with you and and go to those, um, specifically the hashtags or whether it be a name. There are many, many names that you see have, and there are many groups within that. And I think that's the first step is, is to find like-minded individuals um, in, in something that's small that hasn't completely uh, full-blown that you might get lost in. So I don't know if we have um, uh, Shelly um, Blakeplock back. Are you there, Shelly? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me? We can. So I'd like to kind of give you a chance to, uh, to jump from this next question, which is, let's say I'm an educator and I really feel like uh, I want to be a part of change. Um, I can, I can go through my own personal change, but sometimes I can't even uh, make change in my in my classroom, much less in the the school or the district or on a larger scale. What advice do you give to an educator who wants to be a part of changing, but feels that that's not uh, being supported in their in their local environment? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I mean, I have to admit that over the last couple of minutes in this conversation, I've been getting very um, I find it very frustrating, right? I find it extremely frustrating that we're having sort of these conversations both in a small level and broader over like, you know, the steps we want to take, whether it's evolutionary or revolutionary, um, how you get people involved in social media, these sorts of things. And part of me really wants to say, you know, as an educator, you have, you have a professional responsibility to get involved. You have a professional responsibility to do this. It's 2012. The mainstreaming of social media happened back in the summer of 2009. Um, it's ridiculous, and, and, and I hate to sound harsh, but, I, you know, we're in this country, in the United States, we're facing the cruel reality that we have a, um, a, a, a an educational crisis, an educational crisis in STEM education, an educational crisis related to the way that we make relevant um, content for our students wherever they are in this country and wherever they are in life. Um, we, we have a struggle that has an immediate effect on the national security of this country. We have a struggle that has an immediate effect on the future culture of this country. We have the baby boomers who are all going to be retiring. 
if, if they can afford to do so, given the situations out there. Um, we have a crisis, and we're treating it as though it's okay to take your time. That you, the more important thing is that you as an educator are comfortable. And I honestly don't buy that at all. Um, I think that we need to do educational triage in this country, and we're in an emergency situation. And if you're a professional educator, it's a professional expectation that, that you're moving on social media, that you're moving on the development of communities and professional networks that will advance education and help kids. Bill, go ahead. Yeah, you know, Shelley, I, I completely agree with you that I think that um, teachers have an obligation to start to use social spaces both as learners and in their classroom. I mean, you know, I agree. I'm there with you. But sometimes I wonder if people's level of comfort with revolutionary change has to do with their position in the system. Because speaking as the guy who's still in the classroom, Revolutionary change just isn't possible, man. My hands are tied by, you know, restrictions and levels of bureaucracy and supervision, and there's just only so much that I can do. And, and sometimes I, I wonder whether or not, like, our belief in the ability for the system to change quickly is a direct, it's, it's, maybe it's directly cor um, correlated to where we are in the system. Like, I sort of believe that people that are beyond the system think it's easier for change to happen than it really is. Uh, maybe it's because they work in a smaller setting. Maybe it's because they're in a position where they're more empowered to kind of own change within their own organization. But for the typical, ordinary, average classroom teacher, the ability to just sort of say, hey, I'm going to change things in a revolutionary way, just isn't there. We're bound by a million restrictions and a million levels of authority over us that um, you know, that make things difficult. I, I, I hear the, the frustration there. Um, and um, still, I, I, I don't let, let down on it. Um, I think that teachers have more opportunity in a 24-7 environment now to actually, if you don't like what's going on in the classroom, there are other ways to teach. There are other ways to help kids. And you know, if, if the idea is staying in a career that is going to, uh, you know, what, 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 it comes down to what is the point of teaching. It, you know, if we're talking about distributed leadership, if we're talking about teacher-led change, I don't believe that teachers, or learners for that matter, are um, defined by the bureaucracies that they exist in. And you know, I, I've made a conscious decision personally to step outside of that. And some people will say, well, now, you know, what you're doing isn't, isn't relevant or practical to what's actually going on in classrooms. I, I, I believe much more in the classroom of the mind and that we can affect change. I think if the schools aren't working, if the situation is so frustrating and learning is not happening, then we, we have to make the conscious decision to change the reality there. And, and I, I feel the, 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 the difficulty. I, I feel that struggle. Um, I don't, I nor anyone else can, can answer that for anyone else. I, I, I like what Holly said in the chat. I actually agree with both of you. Um, we're getting close to the top of the hour. Lisa, we'll give you a chance to 
say one more thing, and then we're going to give uh, a little bit of a shift here. Steve, yes, you know, I just I, I hear what both both of my uh, colleagues here on this webinar are saying, and you know, I, I think back to when I was a kindergarten teacher, and I came into this huge school and this huge high poverty, high second language learning community in Southern California, and you know, I was brand new, you know, from college, and you know, I was going to change the world. And I get to my school, and I'm one of eight kindergarten teachers, and seven of them have stacks of what we used to call back in the day dittos in the closet where the kindergarten kids are supposed to hang their jackets and coats and what have you. You know, I almost ran screaming into the night. And, you know, I am a very, very confident person I was having even as a young woman. And so, you know, I stuck my neck out and I brought my passion about uh, child development, because I was a child development major unlike just a regular uh, uh, education major back in the day. I had to take extra units to do that, but, you know, study Vygotsky and Piaget and, you know, just loved it. So I brought that to my classroom. And let me tell you something, even back then, in the mid-1980s, I got pushback for it. So, you know, I love what, you know, Shelter uh, put in there, that even in spite of that, you know, I pressed forward. But I got pushback for it. I got my, my principal, you know, slamming the desk in my face and telling me to get in line. So let's fast forward 25 years and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a very optimistic person. But I see both sides of the coin. I see what Bill is saying. I see what you're saying, Shelley. And I think that, you know, we just have to keep on keeping on. And, you know, part of the passion that I have for doing that, as all of you do in the work that you do, is mine is getting those new teachers to feel confident and feel guided to be able to make those steps, even though they might not feel it's possible. And some of them will lurk for a year before they tell me, I actually feel brave enough now to actually get an avatar and be myself. So I just needed to share that because I think that even back 25 years ago, some of us that were sticking our necks out, you know, paid the price, but it was a price that had to be paid because of our kids. So this has been really fun. I, I don't want it to end. It doesn't have to end. We do have a half hour built in now for uh, conversation with the audience. And uh, panelists, we asked you for an hour. And if, you're, if you can stay, we'd love to have you stay on board and continue the conversation. But if you need to go, we understand that. And please feel free just to, to go. I'm going to clap for you at this time. I'm, I'm hovering over the smiley face in the participant window. And then I go down to applause. That's how you applaud. This has been terrific. I come at this from a very optimistic view. I actually think the fact that we can hold this conversation now in this way is part of a sign of uh, significant changes. And changes never come as, as fast as we might want them to. Um, but I, I feel like each of you has contributed in a really significant way to this discussion. And I thank you so much for being here. So I'm going to give everybody in the room now microphone privileges. And what that means is that you can grab the mic if there's something you want to say. I'm going to create a new blank page here. And you can either put a note or a comment or something that uh, you thought of during the session up on this page. You do so by clicking on the little A icon to the left of the whiteboard. I'll give you an example. So I just click on the A and then I type in there. This is an example. So you can see that you can put a, you can put a note up there, or you can put an idea, or a thought, or a question. You can also put them in the chat. And uh, if you want to grab the microphone. Please feel free to do so. How, those of you in the audience, how did you respond to this discussion? Were there things that came up that you 
felt like uh, you wanted to weigh in on. And panelists, if there was something you wanted me to get to that I didn't, feel free to grab the mic as well yourselves. Steve, I'd like to hear from, you know, I'm in Southern California. I think I'm probably the only person on the panel that's from California. Part of our, our frustration is that there's very few of us in social media actually on California. Well, Steve, I'm sorry, you're, you're a resident of California, I think, still. Um, there's so few of us in California, and there's more of you, you know, on the East Coast. And I see that all the time in his metrics and, you know, some of the other metrics that I, that I follow. But I'm just wondering, you know, I always like to ask this question, and I, I'm surprised you haven't asked it, Steve, but it's probably just kind of everybody asks it all the time. But what are our next steps? I mean, here we are. There's, you know, there were about 40 of us here. What are our next steps? What's the next step? What do we do? How do we do it? You know, where do we take it? I'm always searching for that, and I, in my own head, in my own mind, seeking it in, on Twitter, but I'd love to hear folks talk about, you know, what's, what's the next step. So I proposed, and, and uh, I am Irish, and I love the Irish proverb, how will I know what I'm thinking until I hear myself say it? And, and I had never said this out loud before, but I propose that this is kind of like democracy, that the engagement and the involvement, we support that, and we'll watch where it leads. Um, Shelley, VP, uh, does that work for you as a message? Do you feel like uh, that... Um, uh, that bridges sort of your concerns and, and Bill's response about, w about what it's like for him in the system? Yeah, I mean, the thing I like about this conversation is that um, I think that there is a great range. Um, and I think that in terms of our own, our own arguments, our own opinions, as well as sort of the constituencies that we represent, uh, the students that we have, um, we, we tend to try to answer big questions with big answers, but I think, think that we can answer big questions by appreciating the kind of um, the, the kind of differences, the, the, the small things, the, the hyper-local realities that each of us have. Um, not just in school systems, not just in school buildings, but in our classrooms, in our direct interactions with each other, in our direct interactions with our students. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, and I really like this conversation for that reason. Go ahead, Susie. Grab the mic, and I'm gonna I'm gonna turn Shelley's audio off just for a minute, and then he can turn it back on. But it he's got a, some kind of a bandwidth issue that uh, causes him to go out and then speed up. Okay, glad that wasn't just on my end. Um, you know, I think as we talk about change and what are the next steps, I think one of the most powerful things that can happen is to <laughs> encourage students to recognize their own role in this. Um, you know, that education isn't something that needs to be done to them or that they have no say in. Um, and I think 
when we unleash that, um, I think that could be kind of an unstoppable force. Um, in, recently for Edutopia, I wrote about a, um, a school-wide project in a very small town in um, Oklahoma. And it was a school where they were trying to kind of do the step-by-step, -step, let's learn a little about project-based learning, and let's integrate technology, and let's move in these kind of um, you know, step-by-step uh, -step ways. And they weren't getting as far as fast as they wanted to. So they changed things up and did a school-wide project um, that was all about student choice and student engagement. And they kind of held out a prize of $1,000 to the, the student project idea that could have the most impact on improving the school learning environment. Just how would you make the school better was this great driving question. Um, and the response to that has just been phenomenal. Other schools have kind of copied this idea. Um, the students, um, you know, every kid in the school was part of a, a team, mixed age group. Every teacher was a mentor for a couple of teams. Kids used whatever technology tools they needed to do um, the work of the project. And one of my favorite moments I heard about was that um, a, an administrator was visiting and questioned a student about why are you out in the hallway during class on your cell phone. And he said, well, I'm calling the mayor to set up a meeting about our project. And I think once that student has had an experience like that of doing authentic work, being taken seriously, then I think change is going to take care of itself. You know, you, you've turned something loose that is going to be very hard to turn off. Okay, Susie, I want to play the devil's advocate on this one. And I, and I think I have an answer for it, but I'm curious as to your response. There have been democratic schools, schools that were very empowering of students for, for decades, even longer probably. Well, what distinguishes this period of time from uh, all of those other efforts that seem to always be secondary narratives that never really uh, grip everybody? Well, I think you know one thing that can happen is a story like this can um, reach a lot more people. The democratic schools, um, which I love um, and have a long tradition, um, tend to be somewhat siloed. You know, they are one school sized, and I think examples like this really do reach beyond the school building um, in that kind of infectious energy that you know the possibilities open up to a much broader community, whether it's just the community right outside the school and the engagement that happens there between students and community members, or a much larger network that kind of finds out, joins this kind of effort, um, copies it, makes it their own. Um, so I guess that's, that's one thought, Steve. And social media, of course, is the, um, you know, the oxygen that um, allows that to happen. I like that phrase, social media being the oxygen. Okay, uh, other things that you would hope that we had talked, we would talk about, or thoughts that you've had. I'm going to look on the whiteboard here. There's a question on the board: Is allowing pupils to use their own devices common or normal in the states now? Bill, you're probably a good one to answer that. You know, I think the answer to that question differs depending on the schools and the communities that you're in. Um, you know, there's a lot of schools and communities that have embraced the idea of allowing students to bring their own devices and use their own devices in classrooms. And then there's a lot of places where those devices are still on lockdown. Uh, I was in the district not last week. I was in the district last week, and we were talking with the uh, technology people about the idea of allowing kids to bring their devices to school. 
And the overriding worry that the technology staff had was that kids were going to use the cameras on their devices to take naughty pictures of each other and send them all around, and, uh, and, uh, and then the school would be held responsible for that. So I think that in many places there's still a real fear about what kids will do with devices. And, uh, and then that fear, uh, especially in uh, kind of the litigious world that we live in, sort of prevents devices from being integrated into the classroom. Uh, you know, in my particular school, for example, students aren't allowed to bring their own devices to school. Teachers aren't allowed to bring their own devices to school either. And, uh, and I keep hoping that the limited budget is going to change that. I keep hoping that, you know, schools being underfunded for the better part of a decade is going to lead, you know, policymakers and decision makers to a point where they say, we don't have a choice but to let kids bring their own devices. But I don't think we're quite there yet. So there's a, also a question on the whiteboard, uh, you know, how do we get together more effectively? And I think this sort of um, addresses what Lisa said, you know, which is the what's next question. So if, the, if we're talking about change and we move beyond the personal and classroom to, sort of to the larger change, are there ways in which we could be more effectively uh, providing opportunities for change? Susie, was that you? Go ahead, Shell. Um, I think from my personal experience, I believe um, that there's like a progression. And, and once you make that connection on social media and you feel a little bit more comfortable and you find your voice, I think there's that time when you have to collaborate, uh, collaborate and create. And, and that was the next step that I took. I found other people that we share the same vision and, and curated projects. and we've seen how these projects in just a few years have really impacted, um, have made an impact, such as EdChat. That began with me, Tom Whitby, and Steve Anderson, and now it's grown potentially. I mean, I would definitely say it's made an enormous impact. And also with uh, different online conferences and even Steve, your name, so I think that's one way is, is, is create something, collaborate and find a way. The ed camps, those are another great example. And you'll see the change eventually, but I think that's the next step. So I use a phrase uh, called go, give, get. For me, it's the first part is just to get started. And then the second is to look for a gift you can give to the broader community something that you can do that will make a difference for others, and that the receiving part comes after you have done something authentic, you figure out a way to have it fulfill you as well. Um, is it a case of our just needing to be a little more proactive in, in the going, like Shelley says, and then in the giving of, of the, the Shell says, where you look for things you can do that will make a difference? Yes, yeah, Steve, I, I, I believe that because, as I shared earlier, I had this passion inside of me to do something very, you know, just forgive me, but very profound because of my passion to to look at, again, the, the lack of preparedness or the lack of the way that new teachers were prepared as they came onto my campus, even though I knew that, you know, they had hearts of gold and they could potentially be these amazing teachers. And so, um, it really was seeing EdChat, which then, you know, their go, which gave me my go, which was to develop my own chat, which is new teacher chat, which is specifically targeted 
to support new teachers. It is not about discussing pedagogy and, you know, you should and we should, but it's, it's a very practitioner-focused and supportive chat. It's very basic. You know, here are the things, the basic things that new teachers need to know and be able to do. And so, you know, that's been my give. And we're two years now. I, you know, and pretty much I'm all by myself in that chat. So I have to say I. Uh, I have given that two years of my life and will continue to do that. It takes a tremendous amount of energy. But the get that I've been getting back is just amazing. I mean, new teachers uh, messaging me, emailing me, as I said before, teachers have been working for a year. And, and teachers, and it really makes me cry, when they say, if there hadn't been for your chat, I wouldn't have made it through my first year as a teacher. And so I totally believe uh, what you say, Steve, what you've been sharing, and, and Shelley, what you said, that that go give get. And I've been getting more than I ever thought I would receive just by that simple action. And I really am appreciative to the pioneers. And in my case, you know, I look at Shelley, I look at Steve, and I look at Tom, who really pioneered this chat and then allowed the rest of us to you know, kind of follow in those coattails, but then move forward. And I think it's just been, it's just an amazing process and it's a work in progress and I'm very grateful for it. So I'm intrigued because sometimes it doesn't work, right? Sometimes the gift you want to give, nobody's really interested in or ready for, uh, and you put something out there and it just doesn't go. How, uh, you know, how have you responded personally to trying to give a gift and finding that uh, the change that you were hoping to facilitate just didn't start? A Go ahead, Shell. example that I can think of, uh, when I first started my blog, I was really excited, and I did this voice thread on uh, cooperative learning, and I had one person respond. And so I, I know this isn't like a big project or anything, because there's been lots of projects correlate to that, but I think it's a good kind of analogy. Uh, a year later, I did another cooperative learning session, and I have over 50 people. I, I put that voice thread again to try and start this discussion on cooperative learning because I found a lot of teachers just didn't know what it was and how to implement it. And I think maybe 100 people have joined that voice thread now, and um, I take it to different trainings and, and things like that. I think sometimes we have to keep it there and, and just wait until, I think part of that is also the voice, that if we're starting and we're gung-ho and maybe we just haven't developed our community yet, we're jumping too far of the community we have to develop. Um, so that way people can still get to know us and see that, because I know personally, I've seen lots of people who get really excited and have these great projects and I don't have enough time to support all of them. And so people that I might not know so well, um, I might not completely jump on their projects. I pick and choose. And, and it's usually people that I know that are going to carry on and, and really keep the projects going. And so I think sometimes we just got to keep in there and keep pushing for the project because we really are passionate about it. <laughs> I'm going to tell a story, and I'm, I'm wondering if I'm going to be glad I did or not. But Darren Cambridge is in the room here. And the Department of Ed started this uh, working group for online communities of practice, and I wasn't invited. But I noticed they were using Classroom 2.0 as the example, or one of the examples. So I actually called Karen Cater and said, I think you need me on this committee. So I, you know, I think one of the lessons I learned from social media was, was a willingness to be proactive. 
was to not allow others to define the territory for me, uh, to not be compliant, but to be an agent. Um, and that's really been a helpful lesson to me in my life as a whole. Am I in trouble, Darren? Oh my gosh, he had just dropped off. I hope he didn't drop off after I said that comment, but I think he, he had just left beforehand. But I feel like that was a very, a very big personal lesson for me that I've gotten from finding my voice, as, as Bill talked about. And, and Shelley said it's being proactive. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, you know, I, I'm with you, Steve. I, I think it's important for us to, you know, be an agent as opposed to being compliant. I understand that. Uh, I think as a classroom teacher, one of the things that I have to remind myself of is that while I may not have organizational power myself, while I can't make tangible changes that, uh, that, are, that other people are held accountable for from my own position, I can certainly influence those who do have organizational power. And that's something that I have to constantly remind myself. If I really want to see my ideas pushed forward, if I really want to see change that I believe in happening, then I've got to like make an, make an intentional attempt to uh, build relationships with the people in the system who do have organizational power. That might be the school principal. It might be the educational technology staff. It might be the, the area superintendent for our district. It might be local education policymakers. But I have to be intentional about reaching out to those people and helping to change their minds uh, because they're the people that can actually make tangible change instead of me. So I spoke at a conference last year and had a woman come up to me afterwards and she said, who gave you permission to talk about this? And I thought that was a really interesting comment. Um, in part because it had never occurred to me that I would need permission, but I think she's in an organization in which you get invited to do things. You don't just sort of proactively do them. Um, has anybody else had that experience of sort of confronting a system in which uh, people feel like it's inappropriate to take that kind of uh, proactive uh, role? Yes, Steve, I'll share a, a, a silly one. Uh, and I say silly because it was silly. Um, I came to the last school where I was principal, and I was very much an advocate for technology in all the schools where I was a principal. I made sure that we got, you know, um, a, a, as much of the latest and the greatest things that we can do, and I totally agree with, agree with Bill. Bill, I reached out immediately at the schools where I was at with the assistant superintendent, the technology director, but the last school that I was a principal, we didn't have um, significant Wi-Fi access and neither did any of the schools in this district. And so I went to my tech director and I said, are you considering doing this? And what are you doing with tech funds? And blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, you know, they're just sitting there. We're just kind of waiting. And I said, well, why wait? You know, I would really love for you to come and uh, put uh, servers on my campus. And he's like, really? You're the first principal to ask me to do that. And I thought that was hysterical. And Steve, afterwards, my colleagues were saying, why are you doing that? What makes you think that you have the responsibility of, or the power to request those technology, those servers? Don't your kids need more books and, and more, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? We could go on. And I thought it was hysterical. And, you know, the tech director and I were just, you know, looking at each other and, and you know, kind of made this little snipe smile. But yes, I can completely remember that experience. And afterwards, when my teachers started sharing, I was in the largest elementary school in that district. My teachers started sharing with all of the other teachers in the district what I had done at the school with bringing that server. 
oh my goodness, the wave came to all my colleagues who were then saying, it's because of you that we now have to do this. And here's the funny part. I got my service for free. They have to pay for theirs. Can we quantify that in any way? Is there a phrase we could use? I keep thinking of that Marianne Williamson quote about, you know, um, uh, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, whatever? You know, who am I to actually do something? Uh, how would we describe that shift in our mentality that many of us experience by becoming involved in social media? Where is it feeling empowered? Is it bravery? What what is it? Go ahead, Bill. You, you know, you said, is it power or is it bravery? I think it's straight up knowledge. You know, I, I think that I know so much more about so many more topics than I ever knew before I started uh, tinkering around in social spaces. I mean, I read more, which gives me the language to sort of argue and advocate for individual positions. I have contacts that um, I can reach out to who know so much more than I could ever possibly know about the, their own particular specialty. So, I don't think that social media spaces have given me additional bravery. I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder before I ever, you know, signed up for Twitter or started a blog. Uh, but I think it gives me both knowledge and it gives me the opportunity to practice and polish my own thinking. And uh, and then I can use that uh, thinking and those opportunities to, to drive change. Okay, we've got just a couple minutes left. We don't have to fill the time if we're done, but if anybody else would like to make a comment, please feel free to do so. Those of you in the room, you're certainly welcome to just uh, take, hit the talk button and take the mic if there's something you wanted to say. If you wanted to be proactive and engaged and a participant and we're nervous about it, we'd love to hear from you. I'll chime in. Um, so I think one role we might encourage people to think about, I mean, think for, for some people, the idea of being a change agent um, or a troublemaker, you know, maybe feel too risky. Um, but I think we can encourage educators to be advocates, to advocate for themselves and for their students, and to use social media as a, you know, the platform to allow that advocacy to happen. And that might be um, a different way to think about it. Um, that might get us some, some different results. I like that as well. And Holly's bringing both worlds together by describing it as an empowered advocate. Okay, it kind of feels like we're done. Uh, uh, Larry Johnson's got a keynote coming up, and I need to jump in and help him with that. That's in half an hour. Thank you, everybody. I'm clapping again. That was really delightful. Uh, again, this was my personal treat, kind of a present to myself to be able to do this session, and I really am, am glad to have connected with each of you. Shelley, you've got an interview with me coming up on the future of education. I'm looking forward to that quite a bit. Um, Bill, you and I have uh, been ships passing in the night on, on getting that set up, so we've got to make sure that happens soon. Shell, Lisa, long, long and good associations, and Susie, just delightful to have you here. Thanks, everybody. Really, really had a fun time. Take care and have a good night or day. Bye, Steve. Mm -hmm.